Brothers, we need you back there too. We do appreciate your worship, appreciate your singing. Uh, we really are getting started with a lot of uh, things that we've taken a break from. Nathan mentioned earlier the Bible Knowledge Hour. We've been off uh, for December and up through, this, up through tonight. And I'd encourage you with that. There are at least three different venues that you can participate in that. Uh, we have every lesson in the Bible Knowledge Hour online. So the person that keeps our website is very good about getting those up uh, within just a few days. And so you can go online, listen to the entire lesson. And you can also come here in person and be here. We have a quiz uh, every night. And so repetition is the mother of all learning, I heard years ago. And so that will help you with that. And then also you can um, listen live on WMPC 106.9 as well as 12.30 a.m. It's broadcast live over the radio at 6 p.m. on Sunday nights. And so please be a part of that. We have choir practice starting up this coming Thursday at 6.30. And uh, they'll be singing in a few weeks. So everybody in choir, you had your break. Now back to normal, 6.30 this coming Thursday night. Men's basketball uh, tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. And so quite a bit of stuff going on. I'd like to ask you to bow and pray with me one more time as we come to God's word. Father, we plead with you now as we would enter your, into this time to study your word. We would ask that not only would we recall some things that we've known before and they would be sweet to us, but that something new and fresh would come. I praise you for the wonderful ministry of the Holy Spirit, the dependence that, that we have on that, the wonderful blessing that it can be. As I've had experience, I've had it, having individuals talk about several different things that they got from the message and I wasn't even going that direction and yet, God, you are the best teacher. I would ask you to help me to be faithful to the word of God. Allow us to set aside distractions as I know there are hundreds of distractions that came into the minds of the folks that are here that are listening over the radio that might be listening in the future. God, we praise you for your involvement in this time. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. There are some books that get written that gain popularity rather quickly. There are some that leave an impression with people. One such book was written back in 1986, and it was called All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. I wonder if some of you might have uh, read that book before. There are some helpful tools that come from that book. Of course, the title itself implies some things are going to be very, very simple, and yet it really, it really resonated with many people. There are some rules and guidelines to apply to life that that book gives, such as play fair. And that applies to kindergarten all the way up through the rest of life, doesn't it? Live a balanced life. And I particularly, I particularly like this one. Clean up your own mess. I like that one. In fact, I think there's a sign somewhere around the church here that says, if you make a mess, please clean it up. We get that. There are so many rules and lists that we make through life because life gets complicated. If you've been around for any amount of time, you'll understand that life gets so, so complicated. And so what we do is we make a list to take care of that problem. And then a new set of rules to take care of this problem. And what we do is we find ourselves with all kinds of lists, all kinds of rules, and oftentimes there's so much going on as far as guidelines and helps, and yet our life doesn't seem to be any better. Wouldn't it be nice if we could go through life with all these challenges and all these complications 
And instead of having to remember dozens and hundreds of rules and lists, wouldn't it be nice if we could narrow it down to just maybe one or two rules that if we can remember, one or two guidelines that if we apply would make life so much more wonderful. As we look into God's Word today, we're actually going to see two guidelines that apply to every one of us, that apply to when you're in kindergarten, and they will apply all the way till the end of your life. Two guidelines that are a foundation for any important list that you will ever make. Now, <clears throat> I thought it was appropriate for us to, for us to spend a little bit of, a, little bit of time um, setting some groundwork because we're about to jump into a new series. We're going to be starting today studying the ministry of Christ. We have already talked about the ministry of Christ, and we've seen um, some of that. And the way that we're doing it is we're going in chronological order. So at some point over the next several months, we'll be in the book of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, whichever um, one portrays what we're looking at chronologically, because we know that not all of them cover every situation. Tonight, we're go- or today, we're going to be looking at some foundational things that should help us when we approach this. When we look at Jesus' teaching and look at Jesus' life, it is so beautiful and so wonderful to see that he never made a mistake. You're in for a treat because we're about to learn from the master teacher. He never taught a lesson that wasn't a 10, outstanding. He never bored anybody, and he backed up his message with his life. Jesus Christ, walking in this world, did a wonderful thing in leaving us a record of so much of his teaching. And in the upcoming weeks, we're going to cover principles for right living. Or better, this is how you're supposed to live if you are a child of God. That's pretty basic, right? If you call yourself a Christian, a believer, this is how you need to be living. Now, let me go ahead and quiz you just a little bit on your knowledge of the ministry of Jesus Christ, all right? We give a quiz every night in the Bible Knowledge Hour. I thought I'd give one this morning. Jesus will oftentimes use an expression as he is teaching. Let me see if you can finish it. The the expression that Jesus uses is, you have heard it said, but I, nobody, all right, let's, oh, oh, there we go, we got some help there. You have heard it said, Jesus said, but then he says, but I say unto you. I guess that was a tough one to start with. Maybe I'll give you guys some softball questions in the future, okay? Jesus, when he was teaching, oftentimes used this line. He said, you have heard it said to these people. Now, there was a group of people that they would oftentimes hear teaching. They were the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders of that day. And so Jesus catches their attention by saying, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. And this might confuse us a little bit because if you know anything about Jesus, you understand that he kept the law perfectly. In fact, in Matthew 5, 17, he says, I have not come to abolish the law, but I have come to fulfill the law. But there was a message that had come from these religious leaders The religious leaders would always send a message and even their life backed it up. They were very, very strict about obedience to the letter of the law. But among the religious leaders, there was a deplorable neglect of the spirit of the law. 
And so Jesus Christ would come in and he would say something a little bit different. But we're going to go over that a little bit. What was, he, was he undoing something? Was he saying something in the Old Testament didn't apply anymore? Is that why Jesus said, you have heard it said, but I say unto you? Those religious leaders were a horrible example. They did what they had to do to succeed in life, maybe to make themselves feel better. And they would, imp- they would impose rules that God did not give upon so many. And yet, on the inside, we know there was something rotten going on. Reminds me of the old uh, story about the little boy who didn't want to obey when he was told by an authority, I want you to stand up. And the little boy did not want to stand up. And after enough, tel- uh, after enough talk, finally the little boy stood up. And he said out loud, I want you to know I'm standing up on the outside, but I'm sitting down on the inside, is what he said. And too often, individuals can obey the rules on the outside, but the spirit of the law gets completely missed. And it's difficult as we approach um, our text because man has a tendency to want to make rules. We just want to make lists. I do that. I'll apply a new rule, a new something to my life, whether it be in, 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 in any area of my life. And I'll say, I'm going to start this starting today. It's possible some of you just started a New Year's resolution in the past couple weeks. It's very possible that some of you have broken that New Year's resolution already, even though we're just a couple weeks into the new year. We're very good at making rules, but oftentimes we're not so good at keeping them. Now let me say this before we turn to our text. The Sermon on the Mount is not a list of rules that if you keep them, God will be pleased. It's not what I said earlier. It is something that gives us the tools for righteous living, but just because somebody keeps these things that Jesus is going to teach does not necessarily mean that God will be pleased with that person. All right, are you interested in seeing what Christ had to say to him? To those, all right, Matthew chapter 5 in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 5 is where we'll begin. And this is going to be foundational. We won't even get to what you think might be point number one as we look into Matthew chapter 5 because I do want to lay some foundation. And I'm going to ask us just to walk away with one main point, one main idea as Jesus Christ approaches this teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. Now let me give you the location. The location where this was given was Israel. We understand Israel to be a small country. And back in Jesus' day, it was divided into three different sections. You had the southern section that was called Judea. You had the middle section called Samaria. And then you had the northern section of Israel, which was referred to oftentimes as Galilee. And Jesus did the vast majority of his ministry in the northern section. In fact, if you ever get opportunity to go to Israel and to go to the Sea of Galilee, you can take a a boat ride out to the middle of the sea and you can hold your hands up in the air and from this spot to this spot, you will see where two-thirds of Jesus' earthly ministry took place. Most of his ministry around the Sea of Galilee. We know that Christ grew up in Nazareth, but he would actually make a town called Capernaum his headquarters for his earthly ministry. Now that's in the northern part of Israel. Jesus was a good Jewish man though and he kept the law perfectly. What did that mean about travel throughout the country? It means if he was in the northern part doing a lot of stuff, ministry, healing, teaching, giving the gospel, 
There were at least three times a year where Jesus had to travel down to the southern part to go to Jerusalem to keep one of three feasts. Oftentimes when we think of a feast, we think of the feast of the Passover. All right, I've asked you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to back up a little bit into actually Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to, just for background, start at verse 23, because this gives us a good understanding of where Jesus is coming from as he jumps into this teaching. So Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, down through 5, 2. And he, that's Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among them. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, uh, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Then chapter 5 starts out, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... And we're actually going to stop right there. So we've given you a summary of what Jesus' ministry was. He was healing, he was teaching, and he was giving the gospel. This is what he had been doing. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, he actually is experiencing great popularity. His fame had spread, and it's early on in his ministry, so I think it's fair to say that Jesus hadn't quite offended everybody yet. He's going to. He's going to say some things that are very, very difficult. But right now, they are following him, and they are loving him. Not only are people getting healed of their, it said pains. Did you see that there? Did that jump out to anybody? Jesus healed them of their pains. How wonderful. They would also get a free meal along the way oftentimes, and we talked about that last week a little bit when we observed communion. There are several reasons why these people would follow Jesus Christ, and I think one of the main reasons was because this group of Jewish people heard about his message of the kingdom of God, a different kingdom than what they had. Do you think they were ready for a different kingdom? Oh, boy. There was Roman oppression that was taking place. Talk about taxation without representation. That was going on big time there. He, they were ready for something that was very, very different. And it wasn't just that Christ had a different message. His message had been validated by his miracles. And so I think that probably most of them had a lower idea of what Jesus was going to be than what he actually was. We know from the disciples that they kind of anticipated that he was going to maybe take over as the new king and they wanted to be the right-hand man in his new kingdom, the earthly government. Well, Jesus was going to go much higher than that. I think with many people that followed him, maybe they thought Christ would be the new high priest. Maybe some thought that he would be able to lead any soldiers to free them from Roman oppression. And of course, Christ would go so much higher than that. Jesus, as we approach Matthew chapter 5, is experiencing great popularity. They loved him. In fact, Jesus was called master or teacher by all kinds of people. 
not just the 12 that he had selected, but by commoners, by Pharisees, by tax collectors. People were calling him teacher because every time he opened his mouth, he spoke with a wonderful authority. And as I said before, he was the perfect teacher. He never made a mistake. We have that to look forward to. Until then, we'll have to put up with people who make mistakes as they teach and as they preach. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, we see specifically who the message was going to because there was a huge crowd with him, and he could hardly get away from them. We talked about that last week a little bit. But in the first verse of Matthew 5, it says that he called the 12 to him. Christ is about to teach to give us what's the best teaching this world has ever seen. And he calls these 12 to him. So they are the specific audience. But do you think there were individuals among that crowd that were leaning in, that were trying to get some information, trying to listen in and see what the next step might be in this new teacher's plan? I'm sure there were. Now, I said we're going to be crossing several different uh, or multiple gospels as we go. In Matthew, we only find that four of the disciples' names that were called. But if we look at the parallel passage in the book of Luke, we find that at this point in Jesus' ministry, he had called all 12 of his disciples. So we can know in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, he calls all 12 to come to him, and it appears that Jesus sits down while he goes to teach them. Now, I want to highlight one word right now, and it should jump out for the rest of our time, and it's the word law. When you and I hear the word law, when it talks about the Bible, it's common that we will have a specific idea. Oftentimes, we will think of the Mosaic Law. Now, some folks will go right to the Big Ten, right? The Ten Commandments, and that's what they think of when they think of law. Other folks will go to the Mosaic Law, those 613 laws that had been developed for God's people as they were delivered from slavery. They never had their own, they didn't have their own government system and they didn't have any good leadership and they're about to travel. Now I'm going back to Exodus here. They're about to travel from Egypt and head toward the promised land. And so very much so, they needed some rules because they didn't have anything in mind. And so we know there are at least 613 laws that were there to guide them. When I say the word law, connected to the Bible, what comes to your mind? When we think of those over 600 Mosaic laws, they are divided into three different parts. There's the moral code, or the Ten Commandments. There's the ordinances and sacrifices. So that's talking about the feasts and the priests. And then there's the social code, what they could eat, what they could wear, what could they, they could not eat and wear, as well as several other things that would keep them pure and clean throughout. Jesus, don't miss this, it's very important as we jump into these next several verses. Jesus is not referring to the Mosaic law when he's talking about the law. He's not referring to something that these people kept for these years. But instead, Jesus Christ is talking about something that I'm going to call the moral law. Things that are right and things that are wrong, and they were right and wrong before the children of Israel came out of Egypt, and they are right and wrong all the way up to today. So the moral law. Oftentimes, you and I will say we are not under the law as believers today. And that is a true statement. 
And yet the moral law of God is something that we are under, something that we cannot ignore. Rights and wrongs found all throughout the Bible. There have always been rights and wrongs. Now sometimes, I'll give you another title for this, sometimes we find this called the law of Christ. Sometimes it's called the law of love. Just in the past week, I was talking to one of my kids and they asked me a question about something that's right and wrong. And they asked where that came from. I think it was about language, about swear words. And they said, who determined that that was a swear word? How come you can make that a swear word and put that in in this movie and you can't put it in this one? Who's the one that decided that? That's a pretty good question. When we think of right and wrong, there is something that has always been. And God even oftentimes will put something in our conscience to let us know that something is right or wrong. Now, class, let me throw you another question. Maybe this is a hard question as well. What was the very first wrong? The very first one. Can you think of it? Search your mind. The very first wrong. You're going to have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis, back to the sin in the Garden of Eden, when there was a command, do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And sin came into the world. And that's why today you are a sinner. Because sin entered the world. And as man continued, there was more than one wrong. There were several wrongs that were going on. So God would give more of these uh, moral codes, the moral law. People would lie. People would steal. Some would even kill. And so the law had to grow a little bit. I knew an old preacher, he thought he could cover quite a bit of the laws and he had a nice little list that he would read, especially to us teenagers. He said, here's what you need to know. Don't smoke, drink, cuss, or chew, or go with girls that do. That's what he would say to us young people. It's not a bad list. It probably will help you in life quite a bit, but it's certainly not exhaustive. As we approach the Beatitudes, we are going to see something beautiful in what Christ teaches, a moral lifestyle. So when Jesus said, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, understand that Jesus Christ is very much so teaching the moral law that God would give. Now I'm gonna ask you to turn to one other place in your Bible as we close, and this is gonna be the main underlying idea. Turn forward to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22 And as you turn there, I want you to understand that Christ, and of course, Matthew 5 is the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Naturally, we get to Matthew 22. We're getting towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. And when we come to this passage in Matthew, there are individuals who are trying to trick Jesus. They wanted so badly to discredit him. They wanted him to lose his popularity. And they... Let me just say this. They had had quite a number of individuals that they had come up against. They had challenged them. And so they had a few tricks up their sleeve. They knew how to knock somebody's credibility out. And they were going to try this with Jesus Christ. We're going to start reading in verse 34 of Matthew 22. And we're going to go down uh, through verse 40. So starting in verse 34 of Matthew 22. Remember, here are some men that are trying to trick Jesus Christ and he gives us one of the most beautiful teachings that gives us a foundational message for the Sermon on the Mount. 
Verse 34 says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Well, you can imagine the Pharisees. They're thinking, well, he silenced those Sadducees. We can do better than the Sadducees, though. So let's see what they come up with. Verse 35. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him, Jesus, a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. And so we understand that they thought they were going to get him. If he chooses one of the laws, then we've got him. Because we can say, don't you think this other law is important? And they thought they would trip Jesus up. And wonderfully, as they're trying to discredit him and trick him or grab an accusation so they can kill him, Christ gives us this beautiful teaching. He gives us these two rules that we are to live by. Bottom line, love God and love others. This is a foundational rule for everything that we will do in life. Love God and love others. And so the sermon that is about to come, this is what I'm asking you to keep in mind. With everything that he says, there are two foundational rules. Love God and love others. You might even try to pick out as we go through specifically in the next several weeks which one he's referring to or maybe it's both. Now let me mention regarding the gospel that we are not saved by keeping the moral law. You and I are saved by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. It's a decision that you have to make and if you have never done that, I would invite you this day to invite him into your life. Ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins And put your faith in him because of the work done on the cross. Because no matter how good a life you live, no no matter how many rules you keep, you're not getting into heaven if you have not accepted Christ as your Savior. How do we get to heaven? By faith. How do we live the Christian life? By faithfulness. And Jesus is going to get into those details in Matthew chapter 5. Now, each one of the Old Testament laws can be placed into either of these categories, loving God or loving others. And Christ has freed us from the bondage of the over 600 laws in the Old Testament. We don't have to look to those anymore. I know people that argue about those. I know some people that will take some of those guidelines and apply them to their life. I know some that want to impose those Old Testament Mosaic laws upon somebody else. We need to be very, very careful to know the Bible because God's Word tells us what is key. Love God and love others. Listen to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. that says, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God and so I would challenge us as we come to this most important sermon to not just avoid sin because of a consequence I'm not saying there shouldn't be consequences I'm glad there are consequences But for someone who knows Jesus Christ, you should not be avoiding sin only because there might be a punishment or you might get caught. Instead, you need to get to the place where you are avoiding sin because you love God and God hates that sin. 
There are consequences, and we can talk about them. We can tell them to young people, that's okay. But ultimately, if we are not choosing to do right because we love God, then what's going to happen is, as soon as we can find an avenue to commit that sin without getting caught, well, then we're going to go down that road. This is why a love for God is going to be so important for us. What can we do? What can we do with this message? I know we're just, just um, starting this, this uh, new series and getting into it, but I would challenge you with this. Allow every rule that guards over your life to have these two truths as a foundation. Love God and love others. So when you're about to do something and you're questioning, is this right or is this wrong? Does it fall under one of those categories? Love God and love others. You know, we've been pretty pointed in our message today. And the word love has come up a lot. And I like the word love, don't you? Don't you like the word love? Yeah, yeah, I love it. I love the word love. But the word hate is something that we cannot necessarily ignore when it comes to how a believer is supposed to live. As I just mentioned, if you are only looking for avoiding consequences and that's why you're choosing not to sin, well, your maturity level is only gonna be so high. There needs to be a love for God and God's character. And it's because of God's character and how different the sin is, that's one of the motivators, one of the motivations for why we obey. But we don't like the word hate, do we? I've got a, um, a brother and a sister-in-law, and they're raising their kids. And they taught him to say something very specifically when there was a food that he hated, all right? So if he had to eat a food and he did not like that food or he hated that food, he wasn't allowed to say, I hate spinach. Do you know what he was taught to say? He said, spinach is not my favorite. That's what he would say. So when they were coming up to supper time and they're having peas and he sees them, he would say, peas are not my favorite, just like that. Now, I would hear that and say, oh, well, peas are okay then no he hated peas he just wasn't allowed to use the word hate when it came to food now he's older today so maybe he has some things that he hates and he can express that but my nephew used to say it's not my favorite because so often we don't like the word hate but as we close let me encourage you with this if there's a sin that you're struggling with there's something going on in your life and you've tried to start something new that God wants or you've tried to stop something that God doesn't want you to do, you need to take this word hate not only into your vocabulary but also into your actions and let me explain. The reason why we live a righteous life and we choose to not sin is because we love God. And everybody likes that idea. I love God. I love, everybody likes that one. And the reason you choose to not sin is because that sin is something that God hates. So if I can get very, very practical with us, when you are coming up to that temptation and you're able to avoid it, if you are just not committing that sin because you know it's got some consequences or because... Um, you know, you might be embarrassed or because you made a promise. If that's the only reason why you're not committing that sin, it's not going to be good enough. Let me tell you the step you need to take as a follower of Jesus Christ. You need to not commit that sin 
because God hates that sin. And if you love God, you need to love what he loves and you need to what? Hate what he hates. It's not just enough to avoid it. You need to hate it. Because the reason why lying is sin is because God is truth. And so you don't just not lie because you might get caught or get in trouble. You don't lie because of the price that was paid on Calvary. And God is truth. And what happens is, is that sin, whatever it is, and all throughout the room, the different ones can come in your mind. We don't like to share them oftentimes. Sometimes we'll ask somebody to pray for us. And what needs to happen for you to get victory over that sin is you need to hate that sin because God hates that sin. And if I can just get very, very practical, here's how much God hates that sin. Here's the price that God paid that should motivate you to hate that sin. God the Father sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. And Jesus Christ died for what? He died for our sins. So if you don't hate that sin, understand the price that has been paid when God the Father sent His Son to this world. And Jesus Christ died not because of anything that He did. He died because of that sin. So maybe this will help you in fighting against that temptation, in that sin. It's not enough just to not commit that sin. You need to hate that sin. Why do we want to have a a good work ethic? Because God hates sloth. He hates laziness. So if you can get by without a good work ethic, is that good enough? You know, if your bills are paid and you can seem to get through life? No, it's not. Because God hates laziness. So you need to hate laziness and allow that to be part of your life that drives you in the choices and decisions that you make. And I can go on and on and on about the sins. And if you can't find specifically where it says in the Bible that God hates that sin that you deal with, make that your assignment. Jump in and look. Because God tells us what to do and so often he tells us what to do because there's something over here and it's not just enough to avoid that. You have to hate it. And the reason you should hate it is because the blood that was shed on the cross was for that sin. That's why it was done. So for you to be Christ-like, you need to hate. You need to hate that sin. And this will drive you. This will drive you. And so when you see someone joking about it, you know I have, a, I have a close family member and there's a certain sin that comes up every once in a while and many people laugh about that sin. TV shows and movies will make fun and, and it's, kind of a, it's, it's an easy thing to make fun of. And when this family member of mine sees people laughing at that sin, he never cracks a smile, he never laughs. And I asked him about it one time. And he talked about the pain that that caused, the seriousness. You see, that sin was very personal to this gentleman. And so he would not laugh when others were laughing at it. Can I suggest to you that that sin that you struggle with is very personal to God? 
because that's why he sent his son to die. Right and wrong, who's to say? Well, God is to say. God has determined what is right and what is wrong. And as we look over the next several weeks and even months at the teaching of Jesus Christ, hopefully you will say, I am going to experience incredible happiness and joy because of the decisions to follow this righteous teaching. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Father, as we look to you, and we've been reminded a little bit of the price that was paid where you said you will let your son go down to earth. You will let him be beaten. You will let him spit in his face. You will let him die for nothing that he did but die for me and die for all these wonderful people that are here today. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and would you bring to mind the incredible price that was paid so that we, when we're choosing between right and wrong, will take it very, very seriously. We'll not allow ourselves to wink at sin, to let sin go. And it's not just so life goes easier. It's because we love you and you love us and paid the price for us. With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around, I'm gonna ask Ron to play through just a stanza of a song. This is a chance for you to pray. If you're here today and you've never asked God to forgive you of your sins and make you his child, you can do that right now because of the work done on the cross. Maybe you want to pray to God about that sin that you struggle with. Determine that you will hate that sin because of the immense price that was paid for it. Take just a moment to pray. Amen.